Ben Franklin once said, not really theological resource, but nonetheless, Ben Franklin once said that the only certain things in life are death and taxes. Yeah, you got it. We know as Christians, we would probably add some things to that. We might argue that the existence and the victory of God is more certain than life and taxes. We might argue that the sufficiency of Jesus, the eternal work of the Holy Spirit, is a sure and sufficient and certain thing. But we understand Franklin's sentiments, don't we? There are things in life that never change from generation to generation. And one of those things that never changes is what motivates this book of Colossians to be written. And that is false teaching. The church of Jesus Christ has always faced the danger of false teaching and false teachers. Even the great first century church in Ephesus, yes, the church to which we have a letter, the letter of the Ephesians written to it, the church planted by the Apostle Paul, pastored for a time by Timothy, even that church over time drifted into believing false teaching. And church history is tragically filled with churches that are faithful for a season, maybe even for a generation or two, and then drift, pulled astray by false teachers and false teaching. You don't have to go all the way back to the churches written to in the book of Revelation to see that none of those churches are in existence today. You can even look around and see the tragic evidences of this. Churches, even in Dayton, in our community, that were at one time faithful and strong and healthy and solid outposts of the kingdom of God here in our community that over time drifted astray. Maybe it was the fear of offending with the truth. Maybe it was wielding truth without love. Maybe it was a desire to be the liked church or the popular church or the relevant church or the biggest church. Now, I begin here this morning for two reasons. First, because although I don't think we're believing false teaching or false teachers, the danger always exists, which means as Christians, we should never think that won't happen in our church. And God help us as a church family to be humble and careful and faithful. That's why each of us as members should be diligent in studying scripture. Each of us should be diligent in faithful prayer, in working together as a whole body, as a whole church to assure that what we're taught, not just from this pulpit, but from Sunday school classrooms and in small groups and in counseling sessions are true and faithful to God's holy word. The second reason I begin here this morning is because as we will see, the first century church in the city of Colossae had drifted into false teaching. They were believing things that weren't minor errors. They were believing things that led to hell, things that did not save. 
So although from the outside, it seems that the, the church in Colossae looked good, it, it was growing numerically, it seems, it had a good reputation from people in the community and outsiders, on the inside, they were beginning to give in to half-truths and distortions of the gospel. And so in his kindness and in his grace, God leads through his Holy Spirit this man named Paul to write this letter of correction and reminder to the church. And if you've read much of Colossians, you know that Paul puts the spotlight squarely on Jesus Christ, God the Son, and how Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient to save everyone who trusts in him. And so he writes for their salvation. He writes for their help and for ours too. So we begin here this morning with this book of Colossians. We're going to spend some significant time working our way through this letter. A couple of housekeeping things as we begin, because I, I get asked quite often when we begin a new series, hey, what are some good resources for me to study more, to learn more, to dig a little bit deeper? So let me just share kind of three resources. This is not an infomercial. You don't have to buy these in the Sword and Trial. And you don't have to buy these at all, but if you are interested in a little bit more or a little bit of help as you're studying through this, here are three resources that could be helpful for you. The first is the ESV Scripture Journals. So these are available in the back. You can pick them up online. They're like, I think, two or three bucks here. Um, but it's just on the left-hand side is the text, all of the text of Colossians. On the right-hand side is journal pages. And so you can kind of journal your way through, take notes as you study, as you read, as you, as you listen to sermons week after week. Follow along through these. The second resource is if you're interested in more of a commentary. So a commentary takes kind of verse by verse, line by line, word by word, and it unpacks it. And some commentaries are really technical and you really need to know Greek or Hebrew to understand them. Others are just so lightweight and kind of fluff that it really doesn't help you out much. It's just kind of life application. Um, but there is a commentary on Colossians in the pillar commentary series. It looks like this. If you're sitting near the front, you're like, well, that's Thessalonians. It's because I forgot my one on Colossians at home. But it looks just like this. I promise. It's white and blue. And, um, and so it's by a guy named Douglas Moo. M-O-O. -O. Can't forget that. Great commentary. Practical, helpful, thorough. If you're looking for something, to, if you're wanting to study Colossians on your own over the next six or eight months, that would be a great resource. And then finally, if you're looking for something that'll just kind of give you a 30,000 foot lay of the land as you approach the study of Colossians to kind of give you a vantage point. If you're the kind of person that has to zoom out on the map first, kind of get the context of where everything is before you zoom in on streets and houses, then this book by Kevin McFadden, which is called Hidden with Christ in God, is a really helpful book. It's like 80 pages, and it's just an overview of the theological themes in Colossians. So it kind of gives you that lay of the land ahead of time to kind of understand what's going on. And I'll send out an email later today that have these links to these as well if you are interested in more. Second housekeeping thing, and I'm just trying to head off some questions that I'll get asked later if I don't answer these now. Some of you are wondering, how long are we going to be in Colossians, right? <laughs> And you couldn't be a part of CCF and not have that at the back of your mind, right? You just know if you're here, we're going to take a long time generally as we work through books. We're not going to be in Colossians for three years like we were for Luke. Um, 
We're going to be in Colossians, best I can tell right now, probably through the fall, so probably some, through October. Now, having said that, we're going to kind of do something we used to do here at CCF, which is when we work our way through Colossians, I'm going to preach Colossians. But as we have other pastors, elders here at the church preach, they will preach different things. So specifically, like in the summer, where we have a lot more of the other pastors who preach, they're going to do our summer in the psalm series. So they're going to keep preaching psalms, I'll keep preaching Colossians, and we'll work our way through. So it's not as though every single sermon from now till October will be Colossians. Although that wouldn't be bad necessarily either. But now you know. Okay, with that said... Let's turn now to our text this morning. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to four statements or four parts of these two beginning verses. So if you're taking notes, we'll have four main points. But before we get there, let me read again our text now that we have a little bit of a setup to this letter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Word of the Lord says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. First thing to notice here in this phrase is the phrase, the will of God. You see that there in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And what we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Colossians is that the cause of our salvation and the cause of our knowledge of the truth is all owing to the will of God. To put it another way, the will of God is responsible for your salvation and your understanding of the truth. The reason you are saved is because God willed it. The reason you understand the truth is because God willed it. He willed to give you his word. He willed to transform your hard heart. He willed to give you ears to hear. It all comes back to God. And Paul begins this letter, not with his credentials, but notice who gets the credit. God does. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by my stellar seminary degrees. No. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, because I was a more devout Pharisee than any of the rest. No. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by or because of the will of God. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, which owes itself to the will of God. So his authority as an apostle, his authority as an author does not come from himself or anything he accomplished. It came entirely from the God who willed it. Back in Acts chapter 9, we get this detailed description of Paul's dramatic conversion where he goes from really kind of terrorist, Christian who is um, terrorist of Christians, who's going around hunting down Christians to persecute them, and he goes from that to Paul, the church planter and missionary, who would be persecuted for being a Christian. In fact, I would encourage you, just journal down in your margin, Acts chapter 9, and go back there today or go back there next week. Later in life, in Acts chapter 26, in fact, Paul goes on to summarize 
what happened to him in his conversion. In fact, I think it's good for you to see this. So keep your finger in Colossians chapter 1. Flip back to the left a little bit to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 26. This is Paul later in his life, after his conversion, after he became a Christian, follower of Jesus. He's now on trial. He's standing before King Agrippa to give an account for why he's a Christian, what happened in his life. And Paul, as he always does, uses this opportunity to share his testimony and share the gospel. Notice Acts chapter 26, verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the Apostle Paul recognizes rightly that his life and identity is a result of the will of God. He was a Christian because God chose to reveal Jesus to him. He was an apostle because he had seen the risen Jesus and had been commissioned by him. And that's what an apostle is. In fact, that's why there are no apostles on earth today. Because biblically, an apostle was someone who had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes and had been personally commissioned by Jesus to be an ambassador for him. Paul was. His identity was a result of the will of God. But his writing was also a result of the will of God. Paul is led to write by the will of God. He's writing, providing the church in Colossae both a warning and a remedy here for their good. So he's writing this letter to warn them. And we're going to see that as we make our way through the letter, especially in chapter 3. He's going to give them some, some sharp warnings about the false teaching that's swirling around in Colossae. But he doesn't just write to warn them. He writes also to give them the remedy, the help, the direction, like an alignment for their thinking and for their souls. And just like the Old Testament, 
prophets who did the same, who wrote on behalf of God, who spoke on behalf of God to turn people back to God. Paul writes to warn this church about the dangers of the false teaching that exists in Colossae, even some in the church, that they might know the truth. And thanks be to God that he provides this letter for our edification and warning and remedy and help today. We are blessed, aren't we, to have 2,000 years of church history. We have the collective wisdom of millions of believers who have weathered the storms of false teaching and false teachers. And we gain so much benefit from those who have come before us and have clarified the Bible's teaching against the backdrop of false teaching. And yet the church of Jesus Christ will face the dangers of false teaching and false teachers until Jesus returns. And aren't you thankful that our good and wise Father in love has spoken? We have what he has spoken for us. It's perfect holy word that we might know the truth, that the truth might set us free. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Colossians is written for our edification, for our help, for our warning as well. Maybe the most important thing that the book of Colossians reveals to us is that is that this man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the Messiah. He is the Christ, which is our second main point this morning as we work through four phrases here, is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, as we work through this book, we're going to see that he is both the subject of our salvation, he is the one by whom and through whom we are saved, and we will see that he is completely sufficient to save Again, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this is review, but I think it's worth repeating. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's like saying Biden, the president, or Charles, the king, Jesus, the Christ. Scholar Doug Moo writes, the title Christ was and is used by Christians from the very beginning of the church to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the man in whom the entire line of promise about a great Davidic king to come had reached its fulfillment. Everything written about and prophesied about in the Old Testament, about the great Davidic king who would come and establish an everlasting kingdom, the Messiah who would come and reign and rule. This term Christ means that this guy is that one, which is huge. The title Christ means that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He is the one who was sent to save God's people from our sin, to reconcile us back to God, and to keep us until the day when Christ returns, when we will spend eternity with him. Most of us, my guess would be most of us, in this room, if you're like me, we're so used to the word Christ and it's easy to just kind of skip right over it, and we don't understand the power of that term. In fact, if you're like me, the first 
few times back last fall, I started really kind of reading over Colossians just to kind of immerse myself in it and prepare for this series. You kind of just skip through verses one and two because like, this is the preamble. This is the introductory stuff. This is the, the salutary things. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay, let's get to the meat. Jesus Christ is the meat. And think about it from Paul's perspective. Remember, Paul is a, he's a Jew's Jew, right? He tells us so, that he was educated under Gamelia. He, was, he received the best, highest quality seminary education available at the time, right? And you think Cedarville, right, on steroids. That's what, that's what the apostle Paul got in terms of seminary education. And he was devout beyond any of his peers, you think of that classmate or that one you know who just excels academically, excels in all, at least all of the outward manifestations of godliness. And you're like, wow, that person is really faithful and really godly and really going places. That was Paul. And he was so zealous as a Jew that believed and had ingrained in himself the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that when this man came along named Jesus and he began to say that he is the son of God and should be worshiped as God. Paul's like, eh, no, nope, not a God, that's heresy. And when a, a group of people called Christians began to believe and follow this Jesus, he did what every devout Jew should have done, right? I'm gonna hunt them down. I'm gonna find them, I'm gonna put them to death. I'm gonna cause them to turn from this false religion, from this heresy. One problem, Jesus actually is the Messiah. He actually is God in the flesh. He actually did come as a fulfillment of all of the promises made to Old Testament Israel. Paul missed it. And so now when Paul says Jesus Christ, think of how huge that statement is. In that one word, Christ, Paul is going against the grain of so much of everything that he had been about. Jesus is the Christ. And he doesn't just say it once here. This is one of his favorite phrases in the book of Colossians. He says it 30 three times in this short letter. I think he might be trying to make a point. And this is the point. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. In fact, the book of Colossians gives us the most detailed Christology of any book in the Bible. You might think, well, wait a minute. What about the Gospels that are all about Jesus and his life and his work? That is true. But if you want to have that kind of interpreted, how are we to understand that as the church today in light of Jesus' identity and his saving mission and his role, the sufficiency of what he has accomplished, there's all kinds of books that do that really well. Colossians might do that most clearly. Why? Why is Colossians most squarely focused on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? It's because... The false teaching in Colossae was chiefly focused on Jesus. False teachers were most squarely set on eroding the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, either directly or indirectly. 
Now, the false teaching that existed in Colossae, again, for us to just kind of set the stage for what we're going to see later in the book, the false teaching in Colossae didn't deny that Jesus was the Christ. The false teaching added to Jesus' work as the Christ. So it wasn't the danger of subtraction, like, oh, Jesus really isn't the Christ. It was the danger of addition. Like, what you need is Jesus plus angelic visions. What you need is Jesus plus an experience of the supernatural. What you need is Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Whether the false teachers came out and explicitly said that or not, the implication is so clear. Jesus isn't enough. You need something else. He's a good starting point, but you need more. You need to go beyond Christ. And so, our kind and faithful God does not just condemn the church in Colossae to an eternity apart from himself because of their belief in false teaching. Rather, he, through his Holy Spirit, writes to them to correct them to lay out the truth for them and to lay out the truth for us. He writes this incredibly helpful and important book, not only for the church in Colossae, but this book is equally inspired for us today. Because the dangers of addition, Jesus plus, exists in our world today as well. Let me just give you a few examples. The danger of false teaching, this kind of false teaching, this Jesus plus false teaching, comes from those who say, Jesus saves, but you also need a second work of grace, or a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you need to speak in tongues to prove that you're saved. If you haven't had a baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you haven't been entirely sanctified, if you haven't had some sort of supernatural spiritual experience, then you can't really be sure that you're saved, and at least you for sure don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You need more. Jesus plus some sort of miraculous activity. Or... The danger of false teaching can come, like this can come from those who say, Jesus saves, but you also need your good works. You need to participate in the sacraments, or you need to do your part to merit salvation, faith, and works. So make sure you go to confessional. Don't miss Holy Communion. Show up on Sunday. Read your Bible. Don't do anything that's too bad, because God meets us halfway, but it's up to us to do the rest. Jesus plus. You need more. Or the danger of false teaching of this kind comes from those who say, Jesus saves, but you need to make sure you also keep the Sabbath day. You need to also keep the Old Testament dietary restrictions. You need to do these things. You need to keep some of the law to make sure that you are part of God's elect. If you're not doing those things, how can you be sure you're part of God's people? Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. So you can see that the danger of this kind of false teaching is alive and well today. And we could probably get into even some more subtle kinds that can creep into our own hearts if we're not careful. 
So by the will of God, Paul writes this letter about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is sufficient to seek and save and keep and seal and guard his own. This brings us to our third main point, and that is that this is written, this letter is written to specific people. It's written to the saints, the faithful, those who are in Christ. Look at verse 2. Paul says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, or you may have a note there, a footnote there, by brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ at at Colossae. Now, we don't know the exact details. Again, give you some background information about the church in Colossae. We don't know exact details about how the church began. But if we put together what we see in the book of Colossians, along with what we see in the book of Acts, we kind of bring those two together. The picture that emerges is that the church in Colossae was most likely planted and pastored for a while by a man named Epaphras. You're like, well, how did Epaphras hear the gospel? Well, it seems likely that Epaphras was in Ephesus, which is a mouthful, Epaphras in Ephesus, when Paul arrived and began preaching the gospel in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So if you remember Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and he begins to preach the gospel there, really plants a church there in Ephesus, and he's there, chapter 19 verse 10 of Acts tells us, for two years so that, quote, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And it seems probable that Epaphras was there and then returned home with the gospel message and was used of God to preach and teach and plant a church in Colossae. It also seems likely that he stayed in Colossae for a while, teaching and preaching. In fact, Paul makes it clear here in Colossians that they received right doctrine from Epaphras. Sometime after that, Epaphras traveled to see Paul. And it could be after he left that false teachers came in. It could be that when Epaphras was there, persuasive, influential, smooth-talking, false teachers began to infiltrate the church. And so Epaphras goes to Paul to seek help, like, what do I do? Like, how do I fix this problem? But either way, Epaphras now, as Paul writes this letter to the church, Epaphras is with Paul. Paul writes back to Colossians after receiving this report from from Epaphras of what is going on, the concern about the false teaching that's that's swirling around. Now, as a bit of an aside, a little extra credit this morning, Colossians is likely written at the same time as the book of Philemon in our Bible, which is a lot of times if you get a commentary or a study guide, it'll have Colossians and Philemon. We know that Philemon was a man who was a part, most likely, of the church in Colossae. So he's a a church member in Colossae. And he has a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus runs away either to Paul or in his travels as he runs away, he meets up with Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him. Onesimus is converted. He becomes a Christian. He's discipled by Paul. And so Paul now sends Onesimus back to Philemon, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul sends him with this letter that we call Philemon in our Bible. We may tag on this fall, just do a couple weeks in Philemon. But Paul sends him back with this letter to show Philemon of Onesimus' transformation and how he ought to relate to him as now a brother in Christ. And it seems probable 
that as Onesimus is traveling back to Philemon, carrying this letter to Philemon, he also took with him the book of Colossians, written to this church, his home church in Colossae. Now, most important, though, for all of us on this point is that this letter is written to a church. It's written to a people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, look at the words that Paul uses here, to the saints, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. This is written to people who are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? We read about it a lot in the New Testament, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, this is not to punt the answer, but much of it will be answered by the book of Colossians, right? The book is written to show us what it means to be in Christ. But for starters, to be in Christ means we are now identified with our Savior. Before Jesus, before we are saved, we are identified in Adam, and we We know what happened to Adam. We know that Adam sinned. He failed. Before Jesus, we are identified in Adam, identified with our sins. So to be in Adam means to have Adam's work, his successes, and his failures applied to our account. But to be in Christ means the same thing. It means to have Jesus' work, to have his perfect obedience accredited to our account. To be in Christ means that when God looks at us, he doesn't punish us or judge us as our sins deserve, but he gives to us the righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus' substitutionary death is for us. We are the ones for whom Jesus has died. That's what it means to be in Christ. To use Old Testament language, it means that God passes over our lives because the blood of Jesus is applied to the doorpost of our hearts just like the blood was applied to the doorpost of Israel as they were about to leave Egypt and all those who were in the house we could say in the blood the death angel passed over and they were brought from death to life or we could go back even further to Noah in the Old Testament who was saved because he was in the ark. The ark was God's chosen instrument of rescue and redemption for Noah to save him from the just, righteous punishment and justice of God. All those who were in the ark were saved. All those who were in the home were saved when the death angel passed over. And all those who are in Christ, by the blood of Christ, have been saved. That's what it means to be in Christ. And so Paul writes here that there is a fundamental change in our identity, those who are in Christ. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are no longer sinners who try to saint. Like, I'm fundamentally a sinner, but I'm going to try to saint. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to try to do the right things and avoid the wrong things. I'm a sinner. But I'm going to try to saint. I'm going to just keep trying every day to saint, to saint, to saint. No, the Bible says we are not sinners who saint. We are saints who sin, yes. We're saints. We will sin. Even though we fight against it, 
Even though we battle against it, we are not yet perfected. And so we battle against sin and temptation. But we are not identified with our sin. Our identity isn't a sinner, it is a saint. Again, we are saints who sin. We're not sinners who saint. We have a new identity. And contrary to popular opinion, in the Bible, saints aren't super Christians. They're not like the morally superior believers who have like leveled up to a certain status where now they are at saint status. Saints in the Bible are all those who have repented of sin and are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. So every Christian is a saint. You can talk to your friends like that. Talking to your friend after church. Have I introduced you to, to St. Matt? Matt, come on over. St. Matt. St. Matt is married to St. Jody. Saint. And this also means if you were not a Christian when you walked in here this morning, the good news is that Jesus died for those who believe, those who were once in Adam, as we all once were. So my appeal to you, my pleading with you today, if you are not a Christian, is that you would turn from unbelief and you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we have sung, as we've prayed, as God's word is proclaimed, God would be opening the eyes of your heart, which is what, how the Bible images that. Your mind would be open to see, you know what, there is a God who is holy and perfect and righteous and I've... There's no way that I can gain his favor on my own. There's nothing that I can do. I rightly deserve punishment for my rebellion, for my sin against him. And this morning, that you would turn from that and that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that even as I preach, later today, you would, you would turn and you would come to God and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I believe that Jesus died in my place. Believe that he is the Son of God. And I need salvation. So save me, forgive me, and cleanse me. And the Bible teaches that in that moment, you, we are transformed, we are saved, we are kept, we are set apart. We move from sinner to saint. This brings us to our final point this morning. This is the most important part of our changed identity in Christ. And it's something that Paul points out right here at the beginning, so I think it's important for us to notice that. And that is that God is our Father. The substance of our salvation is that God, the Creator, is now God, our Father. Again, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this is the epicenter of the good news of the gospel. I mean, Jesus' death and resurrection are absolutely essential. And yet, they are a means to an end. The end isn't merely to have our sins forgiven. The end isn't merely that we would have a changed identity. Like, I feel so much better now. My sins are forgiven. I have a changed identity. I'm a new person. That's a wonderful 
amazing gift. But the center or the summit, we could say, of the gospel is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, all who believe are reconciled to God, are adopted as children. We are no longer enemies of God, which we once were. And we're not even merely friends. We used to sing, we never, I don't think sang it here, but you know, when I was in high school, popular song, I am a friend of God, right? Which is true, but not all that compelling. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm a terrible friend to my friends. I have had friends that are no longer friends, life, time, distance, geography. The Bible says we're a lot more than friends. The Bible says that in Christ, we are children. We are adopted children of the most high God. So we don't just call God our friend, our heavenly friend. We go to him as our heavenly father. And as a father cares for his children, God cares for us. As a father provides for his children, our father provides for us. Even as a father disciplines his children in love, our father in heaven disciplines us in love. And maybe your earthly father was not like that at all. Maybe he didn't care for you or love you well or protect you or provide for you. Maybe he was an absent father or an angry father or an apathetic father. My prayer is that as we work through this incredible letter together, we would come to learn more about and love more deeply and rest more contentedly in our heavenly father. And in his all-sufficient work through Jesus Christ for our salvation. Jesus plus nothing. And my hope is that this letter inspired by God himself would cause us to not only know the truth and love the truth. But that would give us a greater joy in Jesus Christ as we come to see and savor who he is understand our identity in light of him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then we're going to hear the word of God as a benediction, which is really a, a blessing for us as we prepare to go, live out these truths and, and then meet again at 530 for prayer and praise this afternoon. Father in heaven, we thank you that in love you have chosen to give to us your word, which teaches us and shapes us and forms us. And Thank you that you love us enough to communicate to us that Jesus Christ is sufficient. That he saves all who turn by faith and believe. And that you don't merely move us out of the category of enemy and move us into the category of acquaintance or neighbor or friend, but that you adopt us as your precious and loved children. That you give us your very great and precious promises. So, Father, here at the beginning of this series, would you bless this time as we study your word together? 
We don't know what the next six or eight or ten months will look like in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, in our health. You know all that and we rest in you. And Father, I pray that day by day as we work through this letter and week by week as this letter is proclaimed, you would use it not only like a light that reveals truth, that you would use it as a balm for our souls. So God, I pray that you would bless our study of your word, that you would take what we've learned even this morning, you would sink these truths deep down in our hearts that we would reflect and remember them and meditate on them even throughout the day and when we come back later today, we would be reminded of the great joy that we have to be your children. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You hear the words now as this blessing for us as the church of Jesus Christ from 2 Peter chapter 3 says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even this week, church, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 You are dismissed. Go in peace.